Uh, last night, we were thrilled to uh, host the Toronto Mass Choir. Uh, were any of you here uh, with us last night? And uh, praise the Lord uh, for that. And um, one of the things that was so amazing about the concert was it, it didn't really feel like a concert. It, it, it felt like a, like a church service. And yeah, there was a 40-person mass choir, but there was also like a 600-person mass choir. And they kept including us, uh, inviting us to stand, inviting us to sing, singing in rounds, singing harmony uh, with one another. It was really such a, uh, such a beautiful uh, evening together. And uh, there was one song in particular that really spoke to me, and this was our part. Our part was this, by and by, by and by. And, and they got us to do that, and then the, the vocalists sang, sang these words, trials dark on every hand, and we cannot understand all the ways that God would lead us to that blessed promised land. But he guides us with his eye, and we'll follow till we die, for we'll understand it better by and by. Another verse says, oft our cherished plans have failed, and disappointments have prevailed, and we've wandered in the darkness, heavy-hearted and alone, but we're trusting in the Lord, and according to his word, we will understand it by and by. There's a lot of gospel songs, a lot of hymns that have that phrase, by and by in it. It's not something that we use in everyday language apart from when we're singing an old Christian song. Uh, by and by means uh, eventually. It means not long. It means in a little while. That we don't have complete understanding right now, but in a little while, by and by. We're not experiencing, you know, complete victory. We're not experiencing everything that we hoped we would experience in this lifetime, but, but we will by and by. Loved ones, what I want us to understand today from Genesis chapter 3 is this. It's that the full benefits of God's blessing lie beyond the grave. The full benefits of God's blessing lie beyond the grave. Yes, even as we hear Oninye's testimony, yes, there is the blessing of knowing that you're forgiven, knowing that you're free, free from the penalty of sin, and in many ways free from the, from the power of sin over your, over your life. But as we're following Jesus, sin is still present, and we still have struggles, and we still have difficulty. And some of us might have come to, to follow Jesus and, and, and we heard testimonies about having peace and having victory and life transformation. And maybe you started to, to follow Jesus and, and you, you experienced some sort of spiritual momentum. There was this exhilaration of knowing that you're forgiven. There was this sense of, of freedom and you've got a spring in your step as you're following the Lord Jesus. But, but then as, as your life goes on, you, you recognize that the, the way is hard. And that it's narrow. And we kind of forget that Jesus told us that in advance. And sometimes as we're following Jesus and as things get difficult for us and we start to look over at our friends who aren't following Jesus and it seems as they're on the wide path, it seems nice and easy for them. And even though we experience blessings 
on the narrow path and the hard road. We've got to trust in the promise that the full fulfillment actually isn't for this life. It is, it is a blessing to be on the narrow road, to be on the hard path, to be following Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But we are ultimately headed somewhere. And when we get there, it will all be worth it. Now, I want to begin, you know, Nancy read us, read us uh, Genesis chapter uh, 23. I know you're probably thinking, oh man, another sermon on Genesis 23. I mean, I've heard so many sermons. Now, I'm sure you're not thinking that, all right? I've never preached a sermon on Genesis 23. I'm pretty sure most of us have never heard a sermon on Genesis 23, but this is a first time for everything, kind of an obscure passage. And why not make it more obscure by looking at a genealogy right before chapter 23? So let's do that. Uh, Genesis chapter 22 and verse 20 through 24. It says, now after these things, this was after uh, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice and God provided a, a ram in his place. After these things, it was told Abraham, behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother. Like that's just too good, right? <laughs> Uz and Buzz, that's amazing. And then Kemuel, well, why didn't you name him Chuz? But anyway, they chose Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlath, and Bethuel. Verse 23, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. That's important because Rebekah is going to marry Isaac in the next chapter. Of these eight, Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Geham, and Tahash and Makkah. And so why, why are we focusing on this genealogy? Well, we mentioned last week that the Abraham story, you know, ranging from Genesis chapter 12 into the early chapters, or the, you know, the early 20s of the book of Genesis, is kind of framed by the call of Abraham and the test of Abraham. Remember how we looked at that uh, last week? There, you had Abraham's call to go to the land that I will tell you, and then you have the whole story of Abraham's life with Lot and with Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and looking at the stars and counting the sand on the sea and everything that took place. And then Abraham's story kind of ends with another go and I will tell, but it's the testing of Abraham. You had the promise of the son and then what seemed like the, the sacrifice of that promised son. Well, that's kind of like the matting around the frame. The frame itself is a genealogy of Abraham's father in Genesis 11. And now we have a genealogy of Abraham's brother. So the story started in Ur of the Chaldeans with a genealogy of Abraham's family. And the story is kind of coming to a close back in, you know, meanwhile, back at the ranch. This is what's happening with Nahor. And what's happening with Nahor? Nahor's having all kinds of kids. All, he's, got, he's got 12. And he's sexually immoral. He's got a con concubine. As I said, that whole Hagar scenario, that wasn't like a one-off. Everyone was doing that. That's why Sarah thought it was a good idea. And, and once again, the genealogies in Genesis warn us, don't trust the statistics. Don't just look at the numbers. If you look at the numbers, it looks like Nahor's winning the game. He's living his best life now. Nahor didn't receive any promises. Nahor didn't leave his land behind, and he's got 12 sons. 
Abraham's the one who followed the promises. How many sons he got? One, sort of another, another one that's sort of illegitimate. If you look at Nahor's Christmas card, it's not big enough. They got 15 people all huddled in. Abraham's Christmas card is a couple of senior citizens with a child. It looks like Nahor's winning. And as we follow the hard road, as we follow the narrow path, we're going to look at people who aren't following Jesus and we're going to think, it seems like they're winning. It's because we forget that the benefits and blessings of God's promise actually lies beyond death, beyond the grave. And as we follow the hard path, the, the title for today's message is of Sarah's a Funeral. As we follow uh, Abraham and, and this sort of last leg of his journey, we're going to see in a small way the fulfillment of the land promise. Abraham sees this tiny little glimpse of the promise of the land. We've been focusing thus far because Moses has been focusing thus far as the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We've been focusing mostly on the promise of, of Isaac. Remember God gave three promises in Genesis chapter 12 when he told them to uh, leave uh, behind uh, Ur of the Chaldeans. He said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. So land, offspring, and blessing. Those were the three promises that he had made. So we've seen the offspring promise has come true. He's not a great nation yet, but at least he's had a son. And now we're going to see the land promise fulfilled. It's not as big as what God promised yet, but it will be. So when Abraham arrived in chapter 12, verse 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, I will give you this land. And just like he did with Isaac, God gives more and more clarity and focus and ratcheting up the promise to Abraham about the land. He says in chapter 13, he says, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. This was after Abraham told Lot, you can have any land that you want. And God said, hey, by the way, I'm going to give you everything you can see, Abraham. And you're going to have it forever. And then in Genesis chapter 15, the promise gets even clearer. Genesis chapter 15, it says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. To your, in verse 18, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, from Egypt to Iraq. That's how big your territory is going to be. Again, just like with Isaac, it gets clearer and clearer. It's it's not Eliezer of Damascus. It's not Ishmael. It's going to be someone from your own body. It's going to be someone that Sarah bears. And, and here in the same way, God is clarifying the land promise. And then in chapter 17, verse 8, God says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, sojourn, sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It's, he, he's going to have it, and he's going to have it forever. So Abraham is trusting in God's promises, not just for offspring, but also for the land. 
So I want us to notice three things from this story that, that as we trust in God's promises, there's three realities that we need to still wrestle with. The first one is this, as we trust in God's promises, we will still experience death and sorrow. We will still experience death and sorrow. Chapter 23 begins with the death of Sarah. It begins by describing her life. Sarah lived 127 years. This is the only time ever that a woman's lifespan is mentioned in the whole Bible. And uh, Moses, uh, writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, broke the unwritten rule, right? You never, you never talk about a woman's age. You never ask her what her age is. If she tells you what her age is, you don't believe her. You assume she's 15 or 20 years younger. But here is the one exception. Sarah lived 127 years. It says that Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. She was 65 when her and her 75-year-old husband left Ur of the Chaldeans and moved to the promised land. She was 90 when Isaac was born. Isaac's now 37 years old. She's been living in Canaan for 62 years. We've been following her life for six decades and two years up until this point. And we've seen her ups and her downs, but we've seen that she is a woman of faith. The author of Hebrews gives us insight into her faith. Hebrews 11 verse 11 says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah had faith because she believed that God was faithful and she conceived and bore a child. Uh, Peter, in his uh, first letter, is, is talking to women and to men, talking to wives and to husbands about what it means to honor God in their marriage. And Peter says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now this passage isn't outlawing, you know, outlawing braiding your hair or, or anything like that any more than it's outlawing wearing clothes. But it's, it's, it's talking about where should the focus be? Should we be focusing on the outside or should we be focusing on the inside? Sarah was a woman who's described as being a beautiful woman. She was beautiful on the outside, but she was also beautiful on the inside because she prioritized her relationship with God. Now, it wasn't always perfect. It says here that, that she submitted to her husband. She didn't always submit to her husband. The whole Hagar thing, her husband was submitting to her. It was her idea. She was given the instructions. There was also times where Sarah submitted to Abraham and she shouldn't have submitted to Abraham. The whole tell him you're my sister thing. No, Sarah in that moment should have said, Abraham, I can't submit to you. I have to submit to God and tell the truth. 
So it wasn't, it wasn't always crystal clear. It, Sarah did not live a life of perfection, but the direction of her life, the trajectory was one of faithfulness and submission and honoring her husband who wasn't perfect himself. There were times where she did fear things that were frightening. She feared childlessness. That's what led to the Hagar scenario. She feared what would happen to them when they visited a new city. That's why she told a lie and said that she was Abraham's sister and not his wife. So it's, it's messy. The, the, the Bible stories in the Old Testament and in the New Testament don't describe perfect people. They describe people who place their faith in a God who fulfills his, his promises. And Abraham loved Sarah. In verse 2 it says that he went in and he mourned and he wept. Dale Ralph Davis rightly says that faith doesn't insulate us from sorrow. Sometimes we think that as Christians, we're just supposed to go along living this life of continual victory and nothing affects us or influences us and nothing ever hurts and, and that's not how it, that's not real. That's not how Abraham lived. That's not how we are supposed to live. Abraham loved his wife and when his wife died, he mourned and he wept. He grieved. He was filled with sorrow. And as we trust in God's promises, we will still experience death and sorrow. We don't get to skip over that part. We don't pretend like it doesn't affect us. Grieving is hard. I have to go to a funeral this week. It's going to be hard. The person was very, very loved by their family. There's going to be tears. It's going to be difficult. And that's how God intends it. And I attend funerals. I officiate funerals. I do graveside services. I never get okay with death. I've been to a lot of funerals. Probably more funerals than most of us here. And I'm still a young man, I think. But every time there's something that seems off, it just doesn't seem right, whether the person's very, very small or very, very old. There's something inside of us that feels like it's still too soon. It's not right. It wasn't there. It doesn't seem like it was their time. And the Bible tells us why. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 tells us that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has put eternity into man's heart. That's why we have a problem with death. That's why it affects us so much. It's because we were meant to live forever and that's still inside of each and every one of us. Deep down, we know we should live forever, but we don't. Why don't we live forever? Because of sin. Every time we go to a funeral, it's a reminder of the brokenness of our world and what sin has done. Adam and Eve's sin and our sin, the wages of sin is death. So the author of Ecclesiastes wisely tells us, yes, there's a time for everything, a time to live and a time to die. But there's something inside of us that rejects death, that doesn't want to accept it. And it says that we cannot find out what God has done to the, from the beginning to the end. The author of Ecclesiastes also says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. 
For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The author of Ecclesiastes says, hey, drive right by the keg and head to the funeral home. If, if you want to really learn something, go to the house of mourning. I'm going to a funeral this week. I'm also going to a birthday party this week. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to have a good time at the birthday party. I'm going to get through the funeral. But as fun as the cake and the candy floss and the activities of the birthday party is going to be, I'm really not going to learn anything. I'm not going to wrestle with the deep questions of what it means to be human and what it means to, 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 to love and to live and existence and eternity. I'm really not going to think about that at the birthday party. But when I get to that funeral and I'm standing there and there, there's the casket and there's all the loved ones, I'm going to be thinking deeply and everyone in that room is going to be thinking as well. There is, there is, a, there is something about death that, why, that sobers us up, that wakes us up. It says in, in uh, Psalm 90, which was also authored by Moses, who wrote Genesis, uh, Psalm 90, God says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The more funerals that we go to, the wiser we become, the more we realize our own mortality, the more we realize that life is short. Jesus' little half-brother James said that our life is a vapor. It's like a mist. It's here before we know it. And wisdom comes when we recognize that. Do you really want your last memory or your family's last memory of you to be rushing out the door because you're late for work and slamming it behind you? Do you really want that to be your last memory? Because you don't know what's going to happen to you when you get in that car. Wouldn't you rather their, 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 their last vision of you to be you tell, smiling at them, telling them that you love them and that they're the most important things to you on this planet? Wouldn't you rather that be the last thing they remember? But how many times do we leave it to chance? We think, well, you know, we'll sort things out when I get home. I'm just really mad right now. Don't leave it to chance. Wisdom says, number your days. Live rightly with the people that love you and that you love as well. Live with wisdom. Death is humbling because we realize how fragile we are. Death also gives a sense of perspective. I've officiated a lot of funerals. I've listened to a lot of eulogies. No one ever talks about the maker model of car the person drove. And no matter how many different outfits are in your closet, you only get to wear one in the casket. And we're not going to lay all your clothes on top of you. We're going we're to shovel dirt on you. And death is this reminder of what actually matters. What are people actually going to say about you when it's your turn? It gives, it, gives a sense of, it gives a sense of perspective. It humbles us. But we've got to understand that like Abraham, we still grieve. To put this in a New Testament con uh, context, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, it says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. This is talking about the return of Christ. 
that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Paul isn't saying that Christians don't grieve. We do grieve. Grief is real. Mourning is real. It is good and right for us to cry and to be sad when someone who we love dies. We, we do grieve, but we don't grieve the way the people on the wide road grieve. We grieve with hope because we know that the blessings and benefits of God's promises, they can be experienced here, but ultimately they will be filled beyond the grave. So here at Hope Church, we want to be able to support those who are mourning or who are grieving. And uh, this month, our Grief Share program just got started. It's not too late for you to join. And this is a group of people who want to love those who are wrestling with grief. It could be someone who died a few months ago. It could be someone who died several years ago. And you're still nursing the, the wound. You, you, you still feel like part of you is, is, is gone. And so there's a wonderful group of people who want to listen to you and pray with you and support you. There's a curriculum that we go through. There's, there's a small fee to pay for the material. But listen, don't let the fee stop you from, from, from participating. We'll pay for you to go. But we got to understand that as we follow Jesus and as we trust in God's promises, we will still experience death and sorrow in this, uh, in this life. On the topic of sorrow, in a small way, <laughs> that little number right there, five, F5X5, five, five, that means that one of our children right now would really love to see us. They're not on death's door. Uh, but they want to see you. And so if you could just check the little sticker that you've been given, and if you have that number, uh, you can just go slip out the back door and, uh, and go and, uh, and chat, with your, chat with your little one or change a diaper or whatever age or stage uh, that they're at. As we trust in God's promises, we will still experience death and sorrow. Number two, we will still live as sojourners and foreigners. We will still live as sojourners and foreigners. Verse 3 says that Abraham rose up from before the dead and said to the Hittites. Uh, now the Hittites are the sons of Heth. Heth is mentioned in chapter 10 verse 15 when it's describing how people were populating uh, 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 the planet in all these different directions according to all of these tribes. He's a descendant of Canaan. And he's listed in chapter 15, verse 20. Remember those, all those lists that get repeated in the book of Exodus and Genesis about the promised land and there's the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the termites and all these people who are, who are mentioned. The Hittites are always in that list. So he's, Abraham has been promised the promised land, but the Hittites are living there. And God has already said that 400 years from now, all the Hittites are going to be cleared out and God is going to give this to the offspring of Abraham. But Abraham is not there yet. And look at how he interacts with them. He says in verse 4, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Abraham doesn't say, this land is, is promised to me, so I'm entitled to, to it. He doesn't try to invade and take the territory away from the Hittites at this time. No. He's, he asks permission. He says, listen, I've got no power right now. I'm a, I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner. Sojourner means a temporary resident. And, and a, a foreigner is, is, is someone who doesn't fit in. Someone who doesn't belong. 
He, Abraham didn't have any rights. Abraham was, was completely at the mercy of these people, and he needs to bury his wife. He says that he's a sojourner. Again, the original audience would have understood this. Moses is writing this for the escaped Hebrew slaves who are on their way, having left Egypt and are on their way to the promised land. God told them in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Those are the people of Israel. Even when they go into the promised land, we're to function there knowing that the land belongs to God and that there are sojourners there uh, with him. Even David Writing as a king in Psalm 39, verse 12, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you as a guest like all my fathers. I mean, David, he's the anointed king. It all belongs to him. And yet he uses the word sojourner to describe how he thinks about his life. And he connects that with all of his fathers, like Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. And then even in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there it is again, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The world says that we're supposed to listen to the passions of our flesh. We're supposed to obey the passions of our flesh. But we're not from here. We're not supposed to live the way the world wants us to live. We're sojourners. We're exiles. We're foreigners. And where the world is saying, yes, 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 we're saying, no, no, no. I want to be led by the Spirit, not by sin. I want God's Word to dictate how I behave, not the passions of my flesh. So we don't fit in. Abraham didn't fit in. We don't fit in. We too are sojourners. So we ask them in verse 4, give me property. And you can feel for Abraham here. If you've journeyed with a family through grief or have been through it yourself, not only are you trying to process the loss of this person who meant so much to you, but you also have like 72 hours to make all of the series of very important, very expensive decisions, right? You've got to figure out a burial plot and and a funeral home. And and then you've got to send out invitations for the funeral. And Aunt Susie can't get here until next week. And and, and she'll be upset if she can't get there. And what are you going to do about flowers? Or what about a donation in lieu of flowers? Or Joey's allergic to flowers. And you're, you're trying to figure out all of these little details. And there's no, like, there's no way to manage that. Plus, you're in the fog of grief. You're mourning. And yet, you... You have to make these decisions. And Abraham, he's not living in a cold climate. There is no refrigeration. The clock is ticking here. He needs to get his wife buried. He's really at the mercy of these Hittites. And God is very gracious to him. Verse 5, the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. First off, they call him a prince of God. They could tell, again, Abraham was not perfect, but they could tell that there was something different about this guy who was trusting in God's promises. And and, and when, when people look at you at school, 
And when, you, when your coworkers look at you and your, your neighbors see you, do they say, there is, that person's like a prince or like a princess of God. There is something different about them. Do they see that? Are we living as lights? So because Abraham had been living this way, again, Abraham had been promised blessing and we're seeing this fulfillment of the blessing. And so these Hittites say, listen, take any tomb you want. But it was, it was like a, a borrow proposal. It was like a lease the tomb. <laughs> uh, that Abraham wasn't, wasn't comfortable with that. Verse 7, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites. Again, he's showing great honor to them. He's humbling himself. Verse 8, he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field for the full price. Abraham wants to buy it. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. He doesn't just want a tomb. He, he, wants, he wants to buy. He wants to buy it. So Abraham's like, hey, listen, go ask Ephraim. Turns out Ephraim's right there. Verse 10, now Ephraim was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Abraham, all he wants is the cave. Ephron says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you the whole field. But again, Abraham's not comfortable with this. He's not comfortable with this idea of, he, he, doesn't, he went through this with Abimelech. He doesn't really like these ambiguous sort of deals where, yeah, sure, you can live here. You can have it. Well, what does have actually mean? Abraham wants to buy it. And so verse 12, then Abraham bowed down. Again, he's showing honor before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Verse 14, Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A, price of, a, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What's that between you and me? Bury your dead. Ephron's like, Hey, it's no big deal, Abraham. You can just have my field, the field that's worth uh, 400 shekels of silver. You can have it. Well, if, you're, if you really wanted to have it, why'd you mention the price, Ephron? So even though he's phrasing it like a gift, Abraham can read between the lines. This isn't his first rodeo. Verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron and he listened to what Ephron was really saying. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. Verse 17, so the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, and the field of, with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout this whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of this city. For the first time in 62 years, Abraham owns a piece of the promised land. In this very, very small way, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise. And this becomes a very, very important piece of real estate for the people of Israel. Sarah is going to be buried there. Abraham is going to be buried there. 
Jacob is going to be buried there. Leah is going to be buried there. Jacob is going to make this big deal. Even though Jacob just got, arrived in Egypt, he's about to die. He says, first thing, I need you to take me back and bury me. And he says, bury me in this cave. This was a huge deal. This was the first piece of property that the offspring of Abraham actually possessed. They had some wells, but this is the first piece of land. But we've got to understand, it's, as great as it is, it's still just a field. Think about what he's been promised. It's still just a field. So as we trust in God's promises, we will still experience death and sorrow. We will still live as sojourners and and foreigners. And then thirdly, we will only see a partial fulfillment of God's promises in our lifetime. We will only see a partial fulfillment of God's promises in our lifetime. Sarah, she had believed and embraced the promises. But Sarah died having seen Isaac and seen him grow up to age 37, but Sarah didn't get to see her her little boy get married. Sarah didn't get to see her grandchildren, Jacob and Esau. Sarah, in, in, in this life, did not see the full fulfillment of God's promise. Even Abraham, who, who got to see Isaac married and, and got to hold Jacob and Esau in his hands, he still didn't get to see the whole promise. Abraham was promised property from Egypt to Iraq. Think about that real estate. And all he's got is a field with some trees and a cave. The promise is being fulfilled, but it's not fully fulfilled. Abraham was promised a a family, a nation so big that you can't count the stars stars or, or number the sand on the sea. And what does Abraham have? One son. He's got one son on one plot of land. Almost nothing compared to what has been promised to him, but that was something. And we got to understand that we will indeed only see a partial fulfillment. Abraham has a dead wife, a field with a cave, and one unmarried son. We will only see a partial fulfillment of God's promise in our lifetime. The author of Hebrews, again, just gives us absolute clarity on this story when he says, By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. It it had been promised to him, but he was living there like a sojourner and like a foreigner, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why? Because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking for the promised land, and even as he was living in the promised land, he knew that there was something more. And then Hebrews 11, verse 13 and 14 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Notice that. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. C.S. Lewis says, you have never had it. 
All the things that have deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of it. Tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. But if it should ever really become manifest, if there ever came to an echo that did not die away but swelled into the sound itself, you would know it. Beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. All your life in unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it. Abraham died with one son and one field. But Abraham is going to wake and Abraham's physical foot is going to stand on that physical land that was promised to him. And it's going to stretch from Egypt to the Euphrates. And he will be there in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. The land promise extends to the whole planet, but it's also specific to that piece of land. And Abraham will stand there beyond the grave and will inherit what was promised to him. And right beside him, as Abraham is inheriting the land that was promised to him, you know who's gonna be right beside him? You and me. Arm around his shoulder being like, Abraham, look at all this. Because we've been grafted in. We are called offspring of Abraham. Why is that? Because Abraham laid his wife in a tomb. And then Abraham's offspring had to lay him in a tomb. Ishmael reappears and him and Isaac lay him in the same tomb. And then Jacob insists that he gets buried in that tomb. And, and time after time, the offspring of Abraham, whether they live in that land or don't live in that land, they are laid in a tomb. And it's not always that tomb, other tombs. Offspring of Abraham, born on that land, raised on that land, laid in a tomb until one offspring of Abraham came. And he is the one that we're told by the Apostle Paul that all the promises of God are yes and amen. And this offspring of Abraham stood on that land and he lived the life that Abraham couldn't live or that Sarah couldn't live and that I certainly can't live. He lived a perfect life and they slaughtered him for it. And they laid him in a tomb, just like Sarah, just like Abraham, just like Isaac, just like Jacob. But that offspring of Abraham didn't stay in his tomb. He rose from the dead 
so that all of the promises made to Abraham, they are not only fulfilled for him, but they're also fulfilled for us because we're grafted into those promises. And if we have faith, we too can have hope, not just in this life, but hope beyond the grave. And so listen, if you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, I am here to tell you that a way has been made for you. It is a hard way. I don't want to do false advertising. Jesus said the road is narrow. It is hard. There is a cost. But there are definite blessings of going on that road. Blessings right here, right now. Knowing that you're set free. Knowing that you're forgiven. But there are even more blessings beyond the grave, blessings that go through all of eternity because Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, when he suffered and died on the cross, took the blame for my sin and for all of our sins and you need to place your faith in him. Abraham could look forward and anticipate what Jesus was gonna do. We look backward on what Jesus has already accomplished and you can make a decision today to admit that you're a sinner, to believe that Jesus died for you and to commit to fall Follow him on that narrow road. And those blessings are here for you today. And there are greater blessings for you even beyond the grave. And for those of us who have already decided to follow Jesus, we need to understand and embrace and celebrate the blessings that we enjoy today. But we also need to understand that there is a cost. But in the end, we will see that it was worth it. Because we're going to stand there side by side with the heroes of the faith. Check it out, Abraham. Look at this glorious land that God has given to us. Not because of anything that we've done, but because God is faithful to his promises. Let's bow our heads and, and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. The one through whom every promise is yes and amen. And we're going to say amen at the end of this prayer. We're going to say yes. We're going to say we agree. And we're going to pray this prayer in the name of Jesus. The one who has made it possible for all of the promises to be fulfilled. And they haven't all been fulfilled yet. And so Lord, give us hope. Give us patience. Give us peace. Give us endurance to live the way that you would have us to live. The road is narrow. The way is hard. But it is worth it. Because there will be a day where we will all stand before you. And it will all be worth it. So Lord, we love you. Be with us. Help us. Fill us with your spirit as we respond, not only with song, but as we try to respond with lives that are worthy of the truths that were just proclaimed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.